Tonight I want to talk about, um, in an experiential way hopefully, something that I find really fascinating. I get really happy somehow talking about this. And the subject is um, attachment or grasping. <laughs> I mean, not that grasping is happy, but I just, I just find the exploration of it so interesting. And hopefully, I'm not the only one who finds it interesting. And it's really key to the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche said once that Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone all the time. can't be improved upon. It can't be changed. And you'll also be glad to know it can't be degenerated. We can't harm it no matter what we do. Buddhas simply recognize what the rest of us ignore, you know, the true nature of all of us. And so, in working in our meditation practice, it's really on the principle that what keeps us ignoring our true nature is that it's a way of speaking about it, is that it's veiled by temporary obscurations, temporary things in the way. The example that's often given is that it's the way that clouds hide the sky or seem to block the radiance of the sun, although actually having no effect whatsoever on the sky or the radiance of the sun. And our conventional meditation practices, this is also from Yoshal Kempo, can work in two ways to uncover our true nature. One is by dissolving the obscurations that then lets our innate purity shine through. And the other is by simply recognizing these obscurations for the ephemeral, impermanent, insubstantial phenomena that they are. In either case, letting us notice, revealing what has always been present, our Buddha nature, so to speak, or our innate purity. The phenomenon of clinging, of grasping, of attachment, is in some ways one of the key obscurations that we get blinded by. So much so that the Buddha, in elucidating his Four Noble Truths, which the first one I'm not allowed to talk about because it's the nature of suffering. The second one, actually... (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about suffering. The second one is that the cause, the innate cause of suffering, is craving or clinging, strengthening into attachment. It's that important. It's that key as an obscuration. So I want to just explore it together. Several people have commented either about yesterday or other times during this retreat, and at times not on retreat, where there's been a sense, whatever you want to call it, of just this pristine, total interconnectedness. No sense of self, no sense of separation from environment, maybe just warmth, 
maybe just hearing, maybe just seeing, just the sense of being and totally interrelated, all-encompassing experience with actually no me, no other, no sense of separation. That's not some unusual experience that's been somehow created out of the intensity of a meditation retreat. Do you know what I mean? It's not like taking a drug that can put the mind into some kind of altered perception, but it's something that's dependent on the drug. This, this clarity, this state of just being, but in vivid awakeness, is an intimation of the purity of our nature. And it's not that we've created it. It's just that for once, there's a moment where it's not being obscured by the contraction of grasping contraction of wanting by the contraction of self. Nisargadatta Maharaj said once that the obstacles to the clear perception of one's true being are desire for pleasure and fear of pain. Both of those can really come under attachment, under grasping. So I want to just experientially describe attachment or grasping, how it functions in our experience, how it affects our experience and obscures the truth. Craving or wanting, which we've spoken about quite a bit in relationship to pleasant experience and the mind inclines towards it, could be likened to (coughs) groping in the dark for something. The mind is inclining towards it. If we don't notice at that point what's going on, it just strengthens. And where we were just kind of groping for something, it's like, ah, gotcha. And then the whole train starts. That's grasping or attachment. What is going on on the basic, very, very basic level of our moment-to-moment experience? You may have noticed that as complicated as we can make everything in our interpretations, in our descriptions, that when you get down to -to moment-to-moment awareness, there's only six types of experience that we're having, just flowing through over and over and over. We're just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling sensation in the body, and mental experience happening in the moment. That's all, over and over and over. Broken down to that there's the sense doors, those six. Sense, you could call it object, but say there's a sight or a sound, uh, a thought, whatever. And when there's consciousness, when those come together and there's consciousness knowing of it, that's called contact. Just a moment of seeing, a moment of hearing, And as we've said, then there's the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutrality that comes with it. And following that, if we're not paying attention, the craving can come. Or if it's unpleasant and we push it away, again it moves into grasping for something else. If there's just clear awareness, even in that moment of, ah, I kind of like that sound. That could just be it. It doesn't have to lead into a whole story and a whole field of suffering. 
But when we're not really noticing, and this happens so fast and so frequently that it's quite a lot of the time, that we're not really noticing, it so quickly strengthens into this sense of attachment or grasping. So just the thought comes up, a walk might be nice. That could be all it is. But without noticing it, there's a sense of, yeah, a walk would really be nice. In fact, right now, I really want to go for a walk. I don't know if I can last through the rest of the sitting. It's really a mistake that I haven't taken a walk, and it can just lead us off into you know, a two-and-a-half-hour walk. Just, which I'm, it's nothing to do with a, an evalu, a value judgment of walk or not. And the whole discussion of attachment grasping, it has nothing to do with the thing grasped at, but only looking at the process of attachment and grasping itself. And as complex as the thing grasped at might become, a walk and my sense of union with nature, and after all, you know, I came here from the city and I should see it, and, and I haven't been over that ridge, and on and on and on and on, it all started just at that basic sense contact. And no matter how complex any of our Desires and fears are its starting at that basic moment of sense contact, which is one of the reasons a meditation retreat can be quite interesting because it gives us the chance once in a while to notice that moment, fast as it is. This is from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, which is one of my favorite books of suttas. It's sometimes kind of poetic sometimes. For some people, contact the point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. He never minced words. (laughs) Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact is, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. He doesn't say get rid of it. Simply understand our sense activity. And in the understanding, this getting lost, (coughs) the craving and grasping ends. And we can experience the calm that is always accessible when we're not blinded by grasping. So for me, a large part of my practice over all these years has been an active inquiry into the nature and experience of grasping of attachment as it arises. Krishnamurti said once that unless the ways of desire are understood, illusion is inevitable. So here we have a great laboratory, just sitting We're just walking. It's not too complicated. And we really have a chance to notice the moments when grasping arises. What's it like? So take a a sitting. Just simply relaxed, alert awareness, whether it's tuned with hearing or the breath, doesn't really matter, but there's not the sense of tightness. Just awake. And all the various six experiences are coming and going. There's hearing, there's internal images, there's 
sensations, there's thoughts, there's emotions coming and going, and there can still be just this sense of spacious, alert presence, no problem. And then suddenly, whatever it happens to be, some experience arises, just floats up. I wonder if I should make that phone call. And it's grasped at. What does it feel like? What's the experience? How is it different from the instant before? And for myself, I feel actually as a physical contraction around that. <clears throat> I should make the phone call, whatever it is. And from that moment, there's a strong sense of separation, a tension, a discomfort. And what had been just what it is, actually, no analysis. You wouldn't even say there was no sense of self or other because you aren't even thinking about that. But from that sense of, I should make the phone call, it becomes a very strong sense of me versus what I need to do versus what I want, the object grasp, the phone call. All the things, the sitting, which previously had just been what it was, fine, is now in the way. And where, as we might have been quite open and appreciative of whatever was happening, in the moment of grasping, that clarity, that appreciation, that connection is not accessible. Separation, tension, strong sense of me and other. And if we don't notice what's going on, we tend to just focus rather on the thing we're grasping at, the whole story just proliferates, you know, enormously. Can do. It's very seductive, this energy of grasping. It's so easy to get drawn into it. I mean, most of our training is that when you want something, if it's attainable, that's what we're supposed to do. Go get it. I mean, that's the obvious thing. That gets rid of the suffering of the wanting. What we can do here is shift our attention to what's going on when that grasping is present and begin to see, actually, how it's the grasping itself that's creating the suffering and the separation and the sense or lack of peace. Upandita, our Burmese teacher, said once that you can see ignorance manifesting in two different ways. One is that when ignorance is present in a moment, we don't see what is here. We just don't recognize what is here clearly. And the second way it manifests is that we misconstrue what we do see, and then we see something that actually isn't here at all. This has a lot of levels. Certainly on the ultimate level that I started with, we don't see our innate purity, and we do see a lot of separation and unhappiness and wanting. But even on a more mundane level, the way that grasping works when it arises in our experience and we don't notice it and go with it is that is exactly in these two ways. It blinds us to what is here. We can't appreciate what is here. And we can see something that absolutely isn't here at all. A small anecdote. Well, I was told at a retreat I was doing in California this spring by friends on staff that I wasn't allowed to tell this anymore because they heard it too much. Well, probably not too many of you have heard it. And besides, I thought if Joseph could tell his chicken story, I could tell this. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and it's, it's just 
little perfect anecdote on the mundane level to see how attachment functions. I was actually at this retreat in California. It's in the desert, and I was sitting talking with another friend I teach with, and someone had come from outside to visit. In the middle of the afternoon, quite hot and dry, and we were just having a very pleasant, relaxed conversation, quite appreciative, just quite at ease, until this person who was coming to visit said, well, I just had this great chocolate milkshake at this new place down the road. And for some reason, that was the particular idea. Both my friend I was teaching with and I just hit us. We looked at each other. We didn't have to say anything. We said, yeah, right, okay, we've got to go now. <laughs> and really... We stopped being interested in the conversation. We were answering in monosyllables, really, just you know, kind of wishing the person to leave so we could go get a milkshake. And not noticing this process at all. It was all in hindsight. Because if you notice, you can say, I don't really need this. Anyway, we jumped in a car because we had to be back for the next sitting and went flying down to this place which had literally closed 10 minutes before. <laughs> so we're like, oh... But this is where the energy of grasping attachment is really seductive. It feeds on itself. One moment feeds the next. Instead of the sensible thing, which is just go back and give it up, we said, where on this road could we get a milkshake? It's one of these strips. We've been up and down it hundreds of times. We should have known. So I was driving, and we're driving like in a frenzy. And my friend is looking, you know, trying to see where is there somebody who got a milkshake. And he looks over and says, over there, yogurt cafe. And I looked, I said, that says urgent care. It's embarrassing, but true. <laughs> and that didn't even stop us. I mean, really, we kept looking. We didn't find anything. came back. And then, poof, it was over. But this is, because it's so obvious, it's scary. Because how much of the time is this going on when it's not so obvious? A lot. Really a lot. So grasping distorts what we do see. It brings us a sense of separation, lack of inability to be connected and appreciative to what's happening now, and it seriously impairs judgment <laughs> as the sense of behavior. One of my friends spent some years with a, a Chinese Taoist master in, in Colorado, and he's always telling me different little lines he said. One of the ones he used to say a lot was, you know, stop this slavish behavior. And that's just exactly what we're doing when we're in the grip of grasping. We're just slavishly following this mental state that doesn't do anything to get whatever it is. And I'm using simple examples. You know, of course it's much more complicated in our life. And really to tune in that looking at the pain and the confusion that comes with grasping is in no way a negative evaluation of whatever the particular object is. It's how we're relating to any object that's blinding us. So if we could really use the rest of our days here as a laboratory to 
explore this phenomenon of clinging grasping when it arises. Probably, it might even come up, you know, once or twice tonight before you go to bed. You never know. (laughs) Certainly a few times in the next days. Just see if you can remember, which is not our natural conditioning, to turn the attention away from whatever it is that elicited the grasping and onto the actual experience that's arising in the moment. Notice the physical clenching. Notice, don't believe me, look and see if you feel a sense of separation. Look and see what does it really feel like. What's the relationship to the environment? What's the relationship to other people? What's the relationship to the object that's grasped? And it's not to try and talk ourselves out of it. Oh no, I don't need this, you know, I can do without it. Really look at the clinging, look at the grasping, because that's how we learn about it. Let ourselves experience it quite fully. And you can also at that see that it's nothing to be afraid of. The experience of clinging is simply another arising appearance. It doesn't have to be so overwhelming. We don't have to get so wrapped up in it. We can turn our awareness to it and in this way see through this obscuration as simply another ephemeral appearance that doesn't have to have this power to make us slaves. In trying to sort of turn our attention to this area of attachment or grasping, it's often spoken of four different areas, just as a way to help us tune in, some more obvious than others, to places that we might not even recognize that clinging is going on. The first and perhaps most obvious area that we get caught in grasping is out of sense pleasures. Most of the examples I've been giving have been sense pleasures. It's kind of concrete, it's kind of obvious. We all do it. It's interesting because the moment we're caught in thinking this rice cake for tea is really going to be the thing that makes me happy. (laughs) It gets that bad sometimes on a three-month course. (laughs) Or this walk, or this swim, or this whatever. Not that it won't be pleasant, but as soon as we're really, the grasping's in the mode of this is what's really going to make me happy. And clearly it stems from First, the delusion that there's a me in the first place. But I'm not allowed to talk about that too much either. I will come up tomorrow. <laughs> and second, the total denial of impermanence. The fact that any particular impermanent passing experience is going to really make us happy is such, it's such a way to keep us suffering. <coughs> But because I think in our society, at least here, we are, I actually think it's, it's a misfortune to us because we can just, we're just bombarded by sense pleasures, the possibility for one after the other. And even though we might choose to live quite simply as compared to the rest of our culture, it's really easy. I find myself, if I come back from Asia or even from England, when I come back, to the States, and I live, you know, relatively simply, 
But when I come back, I'm so, within a few days, I'm just overwhelmed by the potential for pleasant sense experience. You know, anything you want to eat, you just have to go out and get it. Or you can get it frozen, you know, at the health food supermarket down the road. Anything you want to see, any game you want to play, anyone I want to talk to anywhere in the world, I can just pick up the phone. Anytime I want to take a walk, it's just endless. Anything I want to buy, anything I want to wear, it just goes on and on and on. And what it is, it does is that instead of really seeing, being able to see the suffering, the discontent that comes from the wanting, it's just so easy. As soon as one thing, one wanting is satiated, well, the mind just immediately jumps to the next. And if it can't get that, it just kind of makes a little lateral trip and gets something else. So we're all going to never have to last in sense pleasures in our culture for too long without finding some kind of a substitute. It's a real, it's too bad for us because it makes it harder for us to look at the point that the happiness of getting what we want isn't getting the thing we want. It's the fact that in that moment, the grasping has stopped. There's this peace that comes from the ending of grasping. But unfortunately, we associate it with the rice cake or the orange or the new relationship or the ice cream milkshake or whatever it is. And since that one did such a good job, maybe I should have two. You know, maybe I should have one every day. You know, we can just keep expanding. I think it's for this reason the Buddha, again, he, he could get pretty intense. And he talked a lot about the dangers of sense pleasures. I'm just going to say a little bit. I'm not at all going to go on as strong a riff as he does. I just want to give you an idea. These are some of his examples. Sense pleasures are a piece of raw flesh, a piece of waste meat of a butchered animal that a bird might pick up in its beak. <laughs> That's not the worst. <laughs> Sense pleasures are a pit of burning charcoal into which we may be pushed and burned to death. Sense pleasures are a poisonous snake, dangerous beyond measure. Actually, these next ones I relate to more. Sense pleasures are a dream, short-lived and not real. Sense pleasures are borrowed possessions. They do not belong to us, and we cannot hold on to them. That's actually more my experience. But I wanted to just put out how dangerous the Buddha says it is. And in my belief, understanding, it's not, again, a value judgment on pleasant experience. It's not a value judgment on eating nice food or having a relationship or whatever, but that it's to alert us to how seductive this energy and the pattern of grasping is and how easily we can get drawn into trying to satisfy our yearning for inner completeness by trying to fill it up with pulling in pleasant things from the outside. It's like trying to quench thirst with salt water. It doesn't work. <clears throat> There's a kind of a intensity of pleasure that can come from 
satisfying a sense desire. And I've noticed in myself that sometimes, at first, the sense of, it's more the idea of the peace that comes from the absence of grasping doesn't quite feel like it would do it, you know? It's not quite so intense. It doesn't quite have the charge as, you know, the next most more intense sense experience. And so I think, at least personally, that can be another seduction that keeps us from seeing that it's the grasping itself that's the real suffering, that's the real obscuration. So play with it. Here again, in this laboratory of being on retreat, when you're sitting, or maybe more when you're walking, because when you're walking, and a real strong sense of something you want comes up, and you feel it really turning into grasping. And if it's a phone call, or having a cup of tea, or taking a walk, or taking a shower, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you're walking, you know, there's a sense, oh, I could go do this now. It's a good thing to do. (laughs) Just stop a minute. Don't say, no, it's bad, I shouldn't do it. But stop and really let yourself, as I was saying, be with that grasping, with that whole attachment. Just feel like you're going to die from wanting whatever it is. And just stand there with it, in as spacious awareness as possible. Feel it in your body. Notice the thoughts. Let it be. And notice as it dissipates. And it definitely, definitely will dissipate, since it's also impermanent. It might be intensely uncomfortable because all our conditioning is not supposed to be with this. But just hang out with it and then notice what's the experience as the grasping is completely gone. And I know for me, if I tune in, it's really, it's the peace of non-grasping and in some ways the same peace or even a more profound peace than if I went and did or got the thing that the grasping was about. It's reconnecting again to the peace of completeness that grasping only obscures. So use it, and use the little things, you know. Don't pick the most difficult time in your life, but just the little things, and and watch it. I play with it a lot, like in my day-to-day life, sometimes, when I'm not totally obscured by delusion like with a milkshake. But I do it a lot shopping, you know, going in, looking at clothes, and this desire will come up. And I'll just walk out of the store and watch it. Of course, it helps that everything's so expensive I can't afford it, but that's another thing. But just to play with that and go out and just let the desire come and go and see, you know, my happiness is not dependent on having this thing. And there's not a negativity in that. This is not a judgment. It's just give yourself a chance to play with this. To see we don't have to be driven. The peace of not grasping might not have the oomph, but it's a lot more stable, even though it's subtle. Again, just how sometimes we get entranced, not even by the thing that the grasping is at, but the actual energy, the movement of mind of grasping itself is somehow entrancing, enthralling. There's a little haiku I really like. I think it's by Basho. It says, Though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. (laughs) 
You just get lost in that longing, you know, without any sense. I saw the movie Shadowland some months ago, and there's just one one line in it that really hit me about this, where the character playing C.S. Lewis was teaching a class and talking about the chivalric ideal of love, which was, I'm paraphrasing, that the perfect chivalric ideal of love is one that is absolutely unattainable, so that you have this perfection of longing for the rest of your life. I just thought, oh my God, what a way to live. And to have the mind actually turn that longing into an ideal to be strived for is really sort of very telling to me of how we can get so far afield from being able to recognize what is true by confusing the longing itself for happiness. This doesn't mean, and I really don't feel the Buddha was advocating, that we adapt a kind of a grim negativity to any sense of pleasure or joy, or that we kind of become grim ascetics. And it's certainly sometimes, and I've experienced it in talking with people, and sometimes in Thailand, um, some of the monks or nuns can take the rules that are set up, which are very much made to strip away uh, the possibility of getting caught in a lot of sense pleasures. In many places, you eat one meal a day, just wear the same thing, you can't go out to amusements. You know, it's really stripped away. But those rules can be taken and turned in a way that becomes this like grim fear of anything pleasant, you know, where a monk like gets into this state of fear and negativity to even see a woman, you know, or vice versa. And I've seen some people eating one meal a day supposedly for restraint and renunciation. They could pack in more in 20 minutes than you would think was humanly possible. You know, not exaggerating, mounds of food. It's really an awestruck, actually. I don't think that's exactly restraint of the senses and really cultivating freedom from grasping. Again, though, from Thich Nhat Hanh, how to, how to strike that balance. We have to ex- distinguish between indulging in sense pleasures and the joy and happiness that we experience when we are mindful and at peace. Attachment to sense pleasures can bring about suffering and entanglement, both in the present moment and the future, for ourselves and for others. The joy and happiness of a peaceful mind bring neither suffering nor attachment in the present or in the future for ourselves or for others. Two quite different things. And again, when there's not grasping, the appreciation for what is, for the beautiful, I find is actually much more poignant the grasping actually blinds me to the real connected appreciation. The Buddha said once that to a wise person, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. It's not that we cease to appreciate, but with just the willingness 
to restrain the instant gratification, we can open up a whole new world of appreciation, of joy, of presence and connectedness. So that's sense pleasures. The second field of grasping, as it's spoken of, is called that of grasping its views and opinions. This one I find very fascinating. And usually most of us will hit some point where we rabidly disagree with it when we begin to hit the view that we're really attached to. So view meaning in this context, the tendency of the mind to think this, this way of looking is true and everything else is false. Which it's obvious when we know that. Where it's much more insidious is a lot of the time we don't even know we're holding a view or attached to a view. We just honestly, deeply think this is how it is. And that's when it's really threatening. When we're attached to a view, obviously people with opposing views come into conflict with each other. When we're attached to a view, it really limits our world because what we tend to do in the attachment to a view, certainly we use views, but in the attachment to one, we tend to not let in any perceptions that counteract our view. Say, this is true, and when someone else comes and says something opposite, my mind immediately goes, well, what do they know? They don't know about this, and I know this is true. Well, this is something you guys must run up against all the time in the work that you do. It might be easier for us to see how other people are attached to their views and how their views are so clearly incorrect and based on false information. The challenge, of course, I don't even need to say it, is how closely are we willing to inquire into what's a view for us. The, the real damage, the real dangers that can come in this world from rabid attachment to views and not knowing it are obvious. I mean, I don't even need to mention it, but I'll just take one one example from a book that I read just because it's, it's sort of heartbreaking, but it's just one example in 1,000 million. You know, maybe a lot of you read Randy Schilt's book uh, on how, and the band played on and how the whole AIDS epidemic began to be investigated and discovered and gradually mushroom out of control. And again, to be aware in anything that I read that the person writing, unless they're incredibly, incredibly clear, is also going to be slightly distorting information through their own view. It's just what we do. But anyway, even within that, to see in the whole process of the, the disease first coming to light and the investigation of what it could be and starting to make the links between people that had it how it, the, the information that was coming out of it being sexually transmitted, of it being growing in you know, logarithmic proportion, really scary. So there's sort of like a couple of hero, heroes and heroines in the book of the people who are really discovering, just scientifically collecting the data and trying to put it out. And every single group that was at all involved somehow being threatened in whatever particular worldview they had and not being able to let it in. So, of course, the government 
you know, not wanting to acknowledge the ramifications and the immensity and not really funding for years and years. But also the different scientists at war with each other because having the recognition of having discovered the virus is more important than getting it out and getting the healing going. The newspapers, on their view of what would <coughs> attract readers, didn't really print so much for quite a while <coughs> for what was Randy Schultz thing because people aren't that interested in reading about gay people and Haitians, you know. So I mean, look at how much room they decided to give this, this thing with O.J. Simpson. Unbelievable. You know, that's the view of what would sell papers. And in the gay community, for example, in San Francisco, having, as he described it, just come into a, a real sense of not being so oppressed and being able to express their sexuality openly and, f- and freely and getting incensed at the word coming down that this is sexually transmitted and you should close the bathhouses. And you say, absolutely no, this is just sexual oppression. We won't hear it for quite a long time. And just everything, the blood banks, also refusing to hear it for years and continuing to send out contaminated blood because it would be too expensive to screen it all. I mean, it's heartrending. It's just one example. And as I was thinking about today, there's even underlying it, as I was thinking how horrible this could have been stopped, there's underlying it in my view that somehow disease isn't supposed to happen that people are not going to get sick and die, that somehow that's going to be prevented. You know, there's a little hit of, of, in that moment, me not really accepting the inevitability, which doesn't mean for one minute that we shouldn't do everything we can. I don't mean that. But just really looking clearly, where are my views getting in the way of just seeing what is so? And I think that's a real, it's a real challenge for me. I think it's a real challenge for all of us in opening to what is really true. It means really looking, and it's extremely unsettling. You can know when you're really hitting something that we don't even know it's a view, as I said, we think it's true. You can know when you're beginning to get some information that doesn't fit with our views because it's scary, it's unsettling or we get really angry, or we start to find ourselves getting defensive, or simply wanting to dismiss it out of hand. A friend told me, he was, has been with a lot of Tibetan teachers, and he told me about this one time where um, Islam Agendan was his name, was giving this whole long talk to a big group of Western students about the, the Pure Land, which is a realm, a higher realm than our human realm, that coexists with us now, which is a very happy realm where the Amitabha Buddha lives and is teaching. And he was describing this realm in intricate detail and on and on the way any of us could describe this ranch and the people here and what goes on here and what it's like. And he's that detailed. He was going on and on. And then Fred said he, the teacher began to notice, you know, kind of rolling, the students kind of rolling their eyes, you know, and getting like, come on, why doesn't he get off it? And he just looked at them and said, you might think I'm making this up, but I've been there. (laughs) Can we even let that possibility in? You know, what does the mind do with that? And that's a nice example. (laughs) That's a nice one to let in. There's a lot of not-so-nice ones. As we begin to look, we can see how 
what we don't even realize are views, but the way we think the world is, the way we think experience is or how it should be, is based very much on our own particular perceptions of our own experience. As a simple example, last night Joseph and I were having a little conversation in the course of which he said to me, well, do you have a lot of emotions in the day? Like, how many emotions do you have in a day? (laughs) 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 Without even, I didn't really think, I said, oh, thousands. I said, no, that's too many, but hundreds, oh, definitely hundreds. And then I just started, I just went back to the last thing, and I just started reeling off, you know, and like, just, I reeled off 20, 25, you know, and just was come and gone in the last thing. No big deal, just arising, passing, arising, passing. And he couldn't really think of any. There's not a right or wrong about that. <laughs> Although we certainly have opinions about it. You know, and the experience forms the opinion, and that'll form, you know, our view about certain aspects of life. For example, a relationship. It's just how it is. If we can know, well, that's a view, that's a, that's experience. There's no problem to it. when there starts to be a right and a wrong when it starts to come into conflict then we can see we're taking some particular momentary experience and making it a thing how it's supposed to be you can notice that a lot in practice Mostly I notice the the mind likes to have somewhere to rest. This is how it is. It's uncomfortable to be in that. Who knows? A lot of practice, just simply meditation practice. I find it fascinating to watch. Either I'll hear some instruction, immediately the mind makes up some construct. Well, then this is how I'm supposed to be with the breath. Or this is what a sitting is supposed to feel like. Or this is what open awareness is. Or this is what freedom is. Or this is, you know, the list is endless. And then our experience either matches that or doesn't, and we suffer. Or we have some kind of, ah, this is how concentration is supposed to be. Finished. And I watch that happen over and over. I watch my mind congeal an attachment to a view. And, ah, that's a view. Look at that. Dissipates. And the next instant, ah, but now this is how it's supposed to be just kind of retreating one step back, but wanting somewhere to rest, wanting it to be clear. This is the nature of reality. Give me a list. I have a, a good friend on staff at IMS. He's always coming and saying, you know, I just want the list, Carol, of the ten things of how it's supposed to be and what do I do and what's freedom. Just give me the list. You know, he's joking. He wasn't the first time. Now he's joking, but it's sort of how our minds are. The Buddha talked really a lot about the dangers of attachment to view and how much conflict it brings. I just want to bring this, read this 
one little last paragraph about it. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who have grasped after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) (laughs) He thought he wasn't a funny guy. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't use opinions, you know. We have to function. We have to vote in elections. You know, we all have our views of what's the important thing to do in the world, of how to work with the environment, of, of our political views, our views of who we are, our views of family, whatever. And they're important. I mean, we need to use views to function, absolutely. But not to be attached, not to hold those views of truth. And the underlying view, this is actually the fourth field, and I'm just going to mention it now, the underlying view that is the delusion that actually leads to all of our grasping is the view of a separate abiding self. And for most of us, this is something that we can't actually get to realizing it's a view because it seems so experientially solid, our solid body. You know, our emotions are who we are, or lack of. Our thoughts are who we are, our experiences, our families, our relationships, whatever. And I'm not going to talk a lot about this because it's very complex, obviously, and Joseph is going to speak a lot about it tomorrow. But just to point to that even the sense of separate self is simply a view. It's that radical. The willingness to let go of all views and rest nowhere. Are we willing to abide free from any view whatsoever, even for an instant? It's incredibly freeing. The thought of it can be really scary. And it's radical. And the Buddha went that far in saying that even his own teaching is not to be clung to, is not to be attached to, is not to be used as a view. That can kill it. Is a very a famous parable that he gave, the parable of the raft, where he talks about if you're on the side of a river, it's very stormy and dangerous, and you want to get over to the other side, which is calm and peaceful, which is sort of our spiritual journey. You build a raft, put it all together, you make this really nice raft. It's very helpful. We need it. It takes you across the river. And then what do you do? Do you look at it and go, this is a great raft. It's beautifully made. I think I'll carry it on my back for the rest of my life. You don't. You leave it. You leave it alone. You let it be. And he says, that's the same with my teachings. So even, this is Thich Nhat Hanh paraphrasing. So I've given you this teaching on the raft to remind you how necessary it is to let go of all these true teachings, not to mention those which are not true. (laughs) Don't hold on to anything. And he defines true, by the way, as not believing what he said, but investigating, inquiring, and experiencing for yourself what is true peace and happiness and what is suffering 
never going just by belief or just by assuming it's so because someone said it. And the same thing leads to technique, and this is the third and final area, and I'm just going to mention it, a field of grasping. is grasping at rituals, grasping at rites, grasping at the idea that some particular set of things we do is going to bring us freedom, is going to make us perfect. It takes a real dedication, a real commitment not to be blinded by our views in whatever form, not to be blinded by grasping. This Thich Nhat Hanh, sometimes you know, he might sound a little flowery or nice, you know, notice the happiness and all, but I always feel underneath a real, a real strength, a real this is how it is. He says here, we are not determined enough to liberate ourselves from our deepest suffering. We remain attached to words and ideas, both in our study and our practice. The way we are with our breaths, the way we practice loving-kindness meditation, the way we recite mantras, the way we do any practice, can also lack in skillfulness. We can get caught in the forms. It doesn't matter what. We can get caught in the forms. It's not easy to give rise to awakened understanding. And I, I think just we say it's not that we can assume we've seen through it once. Attachment will not arise again. But it is something that happens on a moment-to-moment basis. It's the nature of grasping, of attachment, that when it arises and we get caught in it, it obscures the recognition, the recognition of our innate purity. But it's also true that this recognition, as Kempo says, is the borderline between Buddhas and beings. But this moment of recognition is the great crossroads, he says, at which we find ourselves every moment of our lives. Every moment is a potential opportunity to either get caught in our attachment, our views, sense pleasures, technique, sense of self, Every moment is also the great crossroads when it's possible to recognize what's actually going on. It's possible to recognize our innate purity. And if we wake up from, you know, a whole nightmare of being caught in some story or some grasping or some suffering, never mind, because this moment is, again, the great crossroads at which we find ourselves. I feel like we never need to despair. We never need to be frustrated or give up. But we can never take it for granted. We can never think, I've seen it once, finished. Now I'm just going to float in the bliss of Nibbana, you know, from now on. In that moment, attachment to views arises again. In that moment, we can see it again and be free from it. Mr. Nisargadatta, nothing physical or mental can give you freedom. You are free. Once you recognize that your bondage is of your own making and you cease forging the chains that bind you. Let's sit for a moment. 